and now we're finding ourselves streaming live yeah and you, you've put literally the most boring background on there that you could have done is that your live desktop right now it's very clean no it's not <laughs> is that a, that's a photo of somebody else's background no it's a it is a photo of my desktop but it's not live when it used to be clean right <laughs> yeah so the reason i want to chat with you because yeah we've we get on pretty well and we talk a lot on slack and things like that and one of the things that i find most interesting is that you've built an app called app zapper which has been uh, a mac app and it's been online for how long has, has that been out now 10 years 12 it went months? yeah it went live in 2006 so coming on 15 years this month actually when we registered our domain that's before twitter isn't it yeah i think i signed up for twitter in 2007 I signed up for it in 2008 and I'm sure it came out in 2006 because I was watching a drama on TV the other day where a guy was pretending to not remember things. He pretended that he'd lost the last five years of his time and yeah. they were asking him questions about whether he had a Facebook account or not or whether he had a Twitter account or not. And he said, they asked him if he had a Twitter account and he said, oh no, I've never heard of Twitter. And I thought, hang about is that right? Did it come out around then? So you've been mm -hmm. so you've been out at least around when Twitter started, maybe not before yeah. Twitter. And yeah. you've you've had this app and that's been pr your primary income, that's right, for all that time. I would say that it's it's I guess it's been part of my income and it's been an, a substantial enough part that it's made the rest of the income like no single stream of income has been reliant or a deal breaker so if if one went down or went up my lifestyle was pretty pretty consistent over those years and and do you update it very often no so did you release it in 2006 and it's barely been updated since 2006? It's been updated a couple times, mostly because the underlying code is based on Unix principles. We're simply looking for file names and finding matches. And then the UI components, which are kind of what make it fun, show you what we found. And then you can zap the things into the trash at the click of a button. So the updates, it's not like... The one thing that really made this successful is early on, we decided to not go crazy with features. Being kind of an idea guy myself, early on, I was like, let's have ideas. We could do this. We could do that. And uh, my partner, Austin, it was so great because he was really young at the time that we started. The backstory, let's tell this backstory real quick. So in 2005, I was kind of in between gigs or looking to get out of uh, a temp gig that I was doing, I think. And I ran across the million dollar homepage. And I, I don't know who's, if you're not, if you've been around, it's still available. I, I remember this, that. Yeah. Yeah. If people Alex don't remember, I'll just interrupt for a second. If people don't remember, or they're too young to know what the million dollar homepage was, it was basically a million pixels, right? On a page. And each was it each pixel cost a dollar is that how it worked yeah so it was basically a gigantic advertising page and each pixel cost a dollar and it was it almost turned into like 
an art installation rather than just an idea. And this guy made a million dollars from it. Genius idea. Yeah, that's a good way. That's a great way to, to frame it. And so he went and sold ads to anybody who would buy an ad. And of course, when you buy ads, you're just looking for exposure. You don't really, back then you didn't know who to target or how to target or targeting wasn't even a thing you could do because people weren't pixeled by Facebook and there wasn't like a common place to, to know where your profile was. So this guy just sold ads to anybody, a lot of casinos, porn, you know, software, everything. <laughs> and it was pretty funny. So I looked at that and it was just a paradigm shift. And I thought, oh my God, like this guy just did it. You know, like he just went for it full balls on. And I thought, well, he's doing a million dollars. Could I do like a smaller portion of that? Could I do a thousand dollars? And I had been doing this contract work for Macworld magazine where I collected 20 shareware titles. Shareware was software that you could use before you bought it. So you would buy it. Back in the day, the shareware was you would you would use the software and then you would send a check to the developer if you wanted to buy it. And he maybe would send you, email you the license. But then as of course, as the internet came on board and everybody could email and do things more quickly, e-commerce, uh, the, the checks went away. But people start, still started using shareware. And so I would collect the 20 titles and get paid. I think I was making five or six or $700 a month for this little contract gig. But every month I would send out a bunch of emails to software developers and say, Hey, do you want your software on the Macworld CD? And of course, everyone said, yeah, totally. You know, and let me give you the latest update. Let me make sure it works because that was major exposure and marketing for software developers. Wasn't a thing back then. There was no way to market stuff. There weren't a lot of forums, few websites and stuff like that. So so a lot of people loved being on the CD. Over time, over eight years of doing that, I had a database of several hundred software developers. After seeing the million dollar homepage, I thought, why don't I just do a, a homepage for Mac software? And I created Mac Squares. And Mac Squares led me to having conversations with developers. My goal was to make $1,000 a month. So I was selling a big, you know, like a few thousand pixels square for $10 a month instead of for a few thousand dollars a month. But I met some friends and I made some contacts. And one of the guys I met was my partner in AppSapper. So I just asked him, what are you working on? He said, I'm looking for ideas. That was a keyword for me. I said, I got lots of ideas and started spitting them at him. And he would say, at first he was like, huh, that's interesting. No, that's okay. And then he just got brave and he was like, no, dumb, stupid. That's a lame idea. But I just kept at it and kept throwing the ideas, knowing that I had nothing to lose. He didn't have anything to lose. And I finally said, you know what? My desktop is cluttered with a bunch of crap because I download all these software titles for this contract work I do. And I look at them and I never use them more than just reviewing them. And he said, well, I do the same thing because I'm always looking at what other people are doing so I can learn how to develop software. So I download everything. Mm. And I've just got a bunch of junk that I wanna, it would be nice to clean up. And I said, why don't we make it so that an easy way to get rid of these apps and all the stuff that they install. And he loved that idea. Like the, the vision was so clear for him and he said, okay, that's it. Let's do it. And uh, then, you know, like a day later, he has, a, he's got like a UI mock-up and then like a week later, he's starting to work on it. And then meanwhile, we're connecting to people in the community and getting an icon built and getting an e-commerce page up. And we went from idea to launch in two months and now here's the funny part. 
I said, why don't you come out to San Francisco? We'll go to Macworld and we'll launch it. Like we'll just make business cards and sell it from the floor. We won't even get a booth or pay any money. We'll just show up with business cards and start selling it. And he says, I love that. idea. Let's do it. So this was like guerrilla marketing. And he goes, oh, hey, before I come out, can you Skype with my mom? And so I thought like, that's interesting. Like, sure, but why, you know? And he said, well, I'm only 16. <laughs> I didn't know he was 16. And um, this whole, we built a whole product. We built a whole business together. We hadn't even talked to each other. Like Zoom wasn't a thing. Skype was a thing, but we were just chatting like in, um, in what, what is now iMessages. I think it was called iChat back then. And uh, we just got on and we got to work and we built the thing. And so he, I chatted with his mom, of course, and she saw that I was a dad and had a new son and was you know, a responsible adult. And so she could send her son out to, to hang out. So he came out, we launched the product and uh, we had spent about a thousand dollars total between us to like get the website, pay the icon, get all the design work done. And the first day selling that we launched uh, in the community and then selling from the uh, floor of the Macworld conference, we made all of our money back plus like another hundred dollars. So we were like cash flow positive from from day one of launch, and it was fantastic. And it's been selling a little bit every day since then. So you, so you made App Zapper with this guy who you never met, you didn't even know his age, and you you'd never seen him, and and then you just met, you just went to MacWorld and then launched it there. And by the way, Elias asked, "What is App Zapper?" Because we didn't actually say what App Zapper is. Yeah, AppZapper is an uninstaller for Mac OS only. It's not for iOS or, or Windows. And it helps you, it takes, you drag an, an application icon onto the little window of AppZapper and then it goes and searches your hard drive and finds the related files and shows you what they are. And then you can zap them and it goes and puts them all in the trash. So it's non-destructive. It just moves files from where they are in your file system to the, to the trash. Mm-hmm. So what happened next? Yeah. So after that, we, uh, so that was I, t- two months in or something, two or three. Yeah, months that was in. two months in at the same time that I was launching apps Zapper with him. I was starting a whole nother business for daily deals for, for Mac software called Mac Zot Z O T. And I shut that business down a couple of years back just because the whole, the whole world of apps came along and Mac software was, um, changing from, download and pay to app store and it was just a lot easier for developers to use the app store to to distribute their apps and so selling them you know via a deal site and making it's app sumo it was app sumo for mac software Hmm. but i think maxot was out before app sumo and what app sumo did was they really did a good job of finding the thing that made people buy which was like a lifetime deal for $39 or $49. And they hit upon this like sweet spot of compelling, like, even if I never use the software, it might be worth it to just have it some point if it's lifetime. So they really hit upon that over years and years of iteration, but our business models were basically the same when we both started. Mine was started in 2006. And I think AppSumo was started right around 2006 or seven, Hmm. which was interesting. I didn't copy him. I borrowed the idea from the website uh, called, 
Woot, W-O-O-T.com. And their business model was selling one thing a day at a deal. And that was it. Once they, and they sold physical products, usually like t-shirts or electronics. The funny story about Woot was that Amazon loved their business model, bought those guys, acquired, you know, acquired their business, made them stay for a couple of years before the golden handcuffs were released. So they got, you know, tons and tons of money because it was an Amazon thing. Then they went back and started doing the exact same thing that they were doing before, but even better on a website now called meh.com, M-E-H.com. And they just sell one thing a day and they make it really compelling to have a community that talks shit about all the, you know, the product and the people. And it's really more of a fun thing. And what you get is you get a bunch of collector type people who have disposable income, who just love buying things and shopping in community and having fun. So, yeah, so I launched, okay. So I launched uh, this deal on MacZot, which was a deal a day for AppZapper, right? So I own MacZot, I own AppZapper. And I did this deal where this was really creative deal back then where I said, okay, for everybody who blogs about AppZapper and links back to us and we'll verify it with code. If you link back to AppZapper, we'll reduce the retail price, the price that everybody sees by a nickel. And so what happened was everybody got excited about it. Like, let's get, let's get this down to zero. We, you know, they thought they were pulling one on us by getting it down to zero. Well, we had 300 people blog about it, about AppZapper, got the price down to zero. We gave it away for, the, for 72 hours. And I think we gave away 12 or 15,000 copies. So our initial launch was like, you know, we had, we got cash flow positive and then a couple, I think it was a couple months later, maybe we did this promotion and we just had this major surge of, of attention. And that really created enough, what we call backlinks nowadays for search engine optimization and stuff. There's enough backlinking and, and mention of AppZapper and enough people know about it because we gave so many copies away for free that has just been word of mouth marketing this whole time. Like I wouldn't even know how to market. I mean, you could do content marketing for app zapper and talk about, you know, the file system and educate people and stuff like that. But really people use it when they're cleaning up their Mac or they've got some software that's causing problems and they're, and they're really trying to just start fresh and, and make it, you know, get rid of things. And so a lot of Apple geniuses might recommend it as a way to get rid of stuff that's not working or conflicts of apps and stuff like that. But anyway, that marketing promotion, that single marketing promotion, I think was a winner. And that's what uh, has caused it to be so, so good for a long time. So how many copies do you think you've sold of it? Interesting. Um, oh, I know exactly how many copies we've sold. We've sold, um, I, got a well, I don't know. I don't have the number right now, but. I thought Let's you would have see. had a ticker on your desktop that every time you sell oh, another one, it's, yeah. it's there. The little, the little cha-ching kind of bell. I could look up the numbers. It's in the hundreds of thousands of copies that we've sold. Um, and, and, and how how many does in the it... single single hundred thousands, hundred fifty or hundred eighty thousand or something? How many does it still sell now? Twelve, thirteen. We're years still later. in the. We're down into finally. It's gotten down into single digits a day. And we have a family pack, so that's uh, you get three licenses. That's that's like a thirty-five dollar one. So, which is like crazy. yesterday, I think it sold about one hundred and eighty dollars worth. That's crazy, and yeah. and that's that's pretty much zero marketing at this point, right? Isn't it? Oh no, it's zero. Yeah, you you don't do anything. You just you just host it. 
right and is it on is it on the app store as well the mac app store it's not because of the the rules of the app store don't allow you to to what they call um what do you call it they ha you have to ask for permission for their password and app store apps aren't supposed to allow you to access um, that level of permission to move files around the file system and stuff. They're supposed to be sandboxed. And so we just never followed the path of putting one on the app store. They take a 30% cut as well, obviously. That is well, yeah. And, and I guess how much does app Zappa cost? 1995 for a single license. Thirty-four ninety-five for a family pack, and I think we have a ninety-nine or ninety-seven dollar for agency. So, it, so it's not much, and a third of that is quite a large. Well, a third is a third of anything, but a third of only twenty dollars is is quite a large amount. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think you know a lot of people complain about the third. Uh, the guys from Hay.com, the Basecamp guys, really didn't like. Are you getting that audio? feedback i'm hearing a weird kind of feedback no okay but the guys from uh, hey really didn't like the idea of giving 30 percent to put their stuff in the app store but i think most software developers indie software developers for sure thought early on that it was a fair trade-off because how do you access 50 million people on your own yeah i, I kind of i kind of flip-flop between it because we we do a, a few apps a genius division um, and I saw the whole hay thing. For people who are not familiar with the hay thing, super quick brief rundown of it is basically the people who made Basecamp, if you don't know what Basecamp is, it's a project management tool. People who made Basecamp made an email app. They released it into the app store and it, it got blocked, basically. Uh, first of all, it got blocked and it was because... Apple claimed it was because they were trying to circumvent using the uh, subscription model. Uh, basically, a Hey is an email subscription service, so you, you pay $99 a year and you get access to their service. And they argued that, Apple argued that by circumventing the in-app purchases model on Apple, Apple didn't get their 30% cut. And Hey didn't want to back down from that. They didn't think that they owed Apple it, basically. They didn't want to give them 30% of that cut. So there was a little bit of a back and forth, and the end result was that Hay put in a little bit of a feature where you can get a 14-day a, a email account. If you download the app, you get a 14-day email account that expires after 14 days, and it still remains free in the App Store. I think that's about all the bits of the story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. And that triggered... No, I've noticed as well that do you know are you familiar with the IA writer app? Mm -hmm. He he's moaning a lot at the minute about Apple as well and I think there's there's some there's some fair arguments to be thrown at them. They are a huge monopoly now and it's impossible to compete with that monopoly. Um but the argument that most developers throw at them it is the 30 30% thing and it's the they say that they've spent all the time making the app and they don't want to lose 30% of their profits. And with with Apple as well, if you want to do any subscription services, 
the majority of it, um, if you're a small app, if you do any kind of subscription service, you have to use the in-app purchase functionality through Apple, uh, which they also then take 30% of. So 30% of every subscription every single month. So if you're charging $10 a month or whatever, they'll take 30% of that. And a lot of developers complain about that. But the thing that developers seem to forget very quickly is the infrastructure, the hosting, the marketing, the default marketing as well. You just put an app on the App Store, you don't have to do any more marketing and it will sell units. We've got apps that we've made that that's that's proven true. We don't sell many units, it might be one a day or something like that. But the fact that it is just on the App Store means that people buy it. So, so you're getting... Uh, and I think the hosting of it, the hosting of the app and the distribution of it is something that's not to be sniffed at. Because if, if you get, if you make a successful app, and well, you'll know this yourself, if you make a sub- successful app, just making it available for people to download is a hard enough task. And Apple essentially give you that for free, apart from your, 99, uh, your $99 a year or whatever it is for the developer license. So... For those kind of things, I don't think it's warranted the the developer backlash. I think that there is some there is some annoying things like like the subscription thing. So if you were to release App Zapper on the App Store and you put in some kind of subscription model, they'd probably come down on you pretty hard and make sure you use the in app purchases. But there's big apps out there like Spotify, for example, that don't have to use the in app purchases, uh, and Netflix and things like that 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 circumvent it. And Apple aren't bothered about it because they know that their platform would be weaker if they didn't have Netflix and Spotify on it. So the rules, the bit I don't agree with is the rules not being applied universally to everybody. But, you know, that's capitalism and that's the way it always is for for everybody, really. Yeah, that's for sure. 30% can seem like a huge amount of money when, you know, this. did you follow that Substack? thread on twitter recently about people saying that substack's going to kind of have a hard time because there's substack is a newsletter subscription service that charges a percent of if you decide to monetize they offer a free service kind of a branded thing but if you decide to monetize and and get the premium and take their branding off then they want to charge you and get the extra premium features they want to charge you 10 percent of whatever you charge. So, you know, if you're going to have a $5,000 a month income using this newsletter, all of a sudden you're paying them $500 to host a newsletter. Whereas there's plenty of free options or $30 a month options. So 500 seems like quite a take. Yeah. But I always come back to the argument that there's nothing forcing you to be on that platform. Right. You, you can, use the platform to build up an audience and I think Substack's great for that and also being on the App Store and things like that. You can use the platform to build up the audience and then take it off. A lot of people, particularly on the Mac App Store, a lot of people took their their apps off mm-hmm. after after they'd built up a large enough following. Right. Um, there's nobody forcing you to use any of these apps and also they're, they're run by private companies <laughs> if if you want to play the game if you want to get into bed with apple you've got to play by their prices that's just the way it is you you can't argue that can you if if you don't yeah. want to 
if you don't want to play by their prices or their games, don't make an Apple app. It's, it's just the way Definitely. it is. It is though, isn't it? You, you can't you can't argue with a company that's got bloody probably close to a hundred billion in in their cash reserves somewhere now. They're bigger than most. I thought it small. was a trillion. Is it a trillion now? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's going on two. Yeah, that's that's a, a a weird American trillion though, isn't it? Yeah, that's probably billions in the UK. Fifteen zeros, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's just crazy, and I think, I think that's a big problem for a lot of things. The monopolies, the the monopoly that Apple now has, the monopoly that Google has, the monopoly that Microsoft has, the monopolies that they all have. There isn't room for anyone else to come into the market. We were we were talking about this at work the other day in the studio, and we were talking about if you wanted a, a phone now, you know, a mobile phone, and you were privacy focused, you didn't want your data being taken and used by anybody. Uh, and we've got a guy in the office, and he he, he prefers Android to Apple, and he and he's pr- he's quite privacy focused. <laughs> And we always make the joke, well, don't have a Google phone because you got an Android phone, they're farming all that data to Android, uh, to Google, sorry, and there's nothing you can do about it. And he said, well, I, I'm, I'm due for an upgrade soon, but I don't really want an iPhone because, you know, there's that whole culty thing. I don't want an iPhone or I want a Google phone, I want an iPhone. He doesn't want an iPhone, but he doesn't want to get tracked by Google. There's nowhere to go. You've got no choice. There's no third yeah. privacy-focused option. Right. And because there's such a monopoly from Apple side, and because there's such a monopoly on Android, which is not really all Google, but you know, it's it's made by Google. Because there because there's a monopoly on both sides, there isn't even room for a third option in the market. When anybody makes a new phone, they make it and they sit it on Android. And then all that data is getting farmed to Google. Your only third option, I told him now, is Hawaii or Huawei. Huawei. I'd never know how to say it. Huawei. Huawei. But then China's nicking all your data, so you can you can either have Google taking your data, China, or or Apple. Um, I think the mistake is thinking that it's your data. You think? Well. I mean, if you just reframe it a little bit and stop thinking that it's your data, then all of a sudden the problem disappears, right? Because here's an example. I used to get upset. I was driving. So, you know, having app income that's kind of passive, you tend to go try all kinds of other things in life to see what's going on. So when Uber and Lyft came to San Francisco as a brand new thing, it was a novelty, right? To go drive one of these things and see how the app worked. So I went and drove for Uber and Lyft as an experiment. And if you're out driving for, you know, a few hours at a time, you just see so many crazy drivers that you start to get upset, right? And if somebody cuts you off, you think, oh man, you're coming into my lane. So by changing the language in my mind from you're, you're coming into my lane. If I change the language to, oh, you want to get into our lane, all of a sudden there was no more problem, right? Because it's not my lane anymore. I don't have to defend it. And it's his lane. Hey, I come on in. It's our lane. 
And so if you just change the language a little bit, all of a sudden you can change how you think about things. I agree, but, and it doesn't concern me that much, the fact that people are taking my, my data, but I do fundamentally think that it is my data because it's me who's making the data. It's, it's me who's sending a text message or it's me who's writing a tweet or it's me who's publishing a, a photo on Instagram. Uh, and, and I understand all the arguments that when I submit it to, to their service, it becomes pretty much their property. I get that and I understand that. But when you, when you consider every action on every service, uh, if you just extrapolate this out, every action on every service, anything you do on your phone basically is somebody else's property, even though you have made all the data. I Fundamentally, I don't agree with that. I, th- I think it, 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 it is my data because... You know, I've 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 made it all. It's like uh, it's like credit card data or whatever. The the data wouldn't exist if I hadn't spent money on the credit card. And it wouldn't exist if you had spent cash. No, but there'd be some other data though, wouldn't there? There'd be purchase data or something like that. And it wouldn't be tied to your name though. No, but I also wouldn't get access to that data either. So mm-hmm. I, I remember reading a thing a while ago about saying it, it was talking about data in quite an abstract context and it was talking about data being the new oil basically um, and any company that has large amounts of data are, are basically going to eventually replace oil companies excuse me because data is something that is being uh, created at, at unimaginable levels every single day of our life we can't even comprehend the amount of data that even I create every day or even you create every day so you you know you you extend that out to everybody in the world. There's an insane amount of data being made every day, and the companies like Facebook and Apple and Google and Twitter and and all those other people who have got this data, they are they are now oil companies essentially, and and we can already see it. They're all multi-billion pound companies, and the the main crux of the of the article was saying that we're getting to the point now where we make so much data and this this article was i think it was probably a year old so it was around the gdpr time so in europe they changed all the data protection laws and things like that and you then uh, you you got the idea that you could request your data to be removed from services and things like that so it was, it was talking about it from that point of view and it was saying, well, if, if the user is using the system, they are making that data and the data is fundamentally the, uh, the it's, it's, it's owned by the person who created it and they should have some say in what happens to that data. But then, then I guess you've got the other argument that, well, you're not paying for the service, then you, you, don't, you are the product, like what other people say. What if, what if we, instead of thinking of it as, a, as your data, what if you thought of it as, let's say Twitter is a cake or a stream, a river or something like that, and you're, you're spitting into the river, do you ever think that you're going to be able to get your spit back out of it at some point because it's your spit? No. 
the fact that they're the ones who make the data structures that store the data, it's only the data structures and the, the computer that make the data even exist. So yeah, you sent in some signal from your keyboard to show you know, letters in that box. But as soon as you hit that tweet button, what you were saying is create a data structure and store it. But it's their data structure, it's their data. You just sent the signal. You don't have to send the signal, but you're sending the signal. It's kind of like you yelling into a publicly recorded event and expecting to be able to say later, oh, can you extract my voice from the recording because it's my voice. And they're like, well, yeah, but you didn't have to yell it. You didn't have to you know, tell somebody to fuck off in the middle of the, the presidential debate. <laughs> and now you want to try to delete it because you're embarrassed. Can't get a job anymore. I think the way the way that I always look at it is that now we've so so iOS 14 has just been released and they're giving people much greater access to what data is collected by apps and when that option pops up in an app and I, I honestly think this is why Facebook has kind of put so much pressure on Apple to delay the full release of the do you want any data to be shared with this app yes or no um when you get that pop-up in Apple now and it says uh, this this uh, this uh, website is going to be sharing so-and-so data, do you consent? Would you ever say yes? No, you wouldn't. Be, be, even if it isn't going to do you any harm whatsoever because we've, we've been putting up with this for so long, you'd never say yes to it. So... If you've if you never say yes to it, and when you become more aware of it, like when you use the latest version of Safari, or if you use Brave browser or things like that, you can see at the top the amount of trackers uh, and other things that are tracking what you're doing. When I'm using Brave browser, I never turn it off. I never go there. Oh, you know what? I'm not so bothered about my data. I'm just going to let them have it. If if I've got the option. For, for my data to not be collected, I'm always going to take it. So I, I, I'm not, on one sense, I'm not bothered because I still use Gmail. I still use Google every day of my life. This is the biggest irony of Google, right? That Google's such a good search engine because it's got so much data about me. When I tried to use DuckDuckGo last month or whenever it was, when I first switched to Brave, in fact, I switched to Brave about five, six months ago, I tried using DuckDuckGo for a week and I just got so used to when you've got a coding problem or something like that, you just you just type three letters in or five letters and Google knows which programming language you're talking about, it knows what you're talking about and it just brings up the result you've seen before. DuckDuckGo, it's got none of my data, doesn't do any of that. I type the same three letters in and click enter and it's useless and I'm like, well, well DuckDuckGo is shit. But it's not DuckDuckGo that's shit. It's just that Google is evil and way too good because it's got all that data. Imagine trying to have a conversation, an ongoing conversation with anybody who couldn't remember the previous conversation that you've had. And you had to like introduce yourself, give them the context about why you're talking to them every single time that you're, you're talking to them. It would get kind of annoying, right? Yeah. But people who have good memories, who remember your preferences, they know you're gluten-free or don't drink alcohol on Saturday nights or whatever. 
they're more enjoyable to hang out with because they know you better. And so you can make a case that these services, yeah, they have the potential to do evil and sell your data and manipulate you, which they, you know, a lot of them do, but it's also the other side, which is the potentially they could serve you better by knowing you better. So that's the, that's the argument that you have to figure out which, which services are really trying to help you and which are just trying to, to manipulate you. That, that's the thing though, isn't it? You don't often know which ones are trying to manipulate you. And it's, maybe it's depending on the leadership of that company at the given time. You know, are they going to get their bonus this month if they, you know, manipulate you a little bit harder? I saw a thing about TikTok the other day. Um, I've stayed away from TikTok. When it first came out, I downloaded it to see what, what it was all about. And I remember when I installed it and I just, I installed it and I, I opened it and started using it. And I just couldn't stop using it. And I was like, this is using some evil evil addictive algorithms here because i cannot stop using this app and i've got a i've got a friend who's obsessed with it as well um and then i saw this article about tiktok and it was saying how it's blowing up and uh, it's one of the most popular social media platforms at the minute and apparently it's all because of this hugely addictive algorithm that they've got that essentially just shows you that tiktok is basically just designed to make you addicted to it Every yeah, sense of TikTok I, is like that. Well, it's it's a simple, I read a thing that described it, not as it's so complex algorithm, but more that it's a simple algorithm. It shows, the it shows you the same feed thing the every time, feed, doesn't it? It shows, you more, it shows you more of the same that you've already seen every time. Well, what it does is it gives you one thing to look at at a time and you have to choose more like this or less like this by your choice, right? Yeah. So... If you watch it, you're saying more like this. And if you swipe up or you know, you know remove it, go to the next one, you're saying less like that. So maybe less of that person or less of that song or whatever the, the TikTok thing is. And all of a sudden you're getting this pro, you know, uh, this or that kind of situation. And it's like more, more of this, more, more of that. And the more you do this, the smarter the thing seems, right? And so it's just like Facebook and all these other people, YouTube even, they're trying to figure out what you like, but they don't, they don't focus it enough to show you one thing at a time. And so um, they're always giving you options and you get distracted and you're clicking on the suggestions and the ads and all the other things. So that's why TikTok is so, so good is that they're just focused. It feels like when you use TikTok that you're in that situation where you're, you, you're watching Terminator 2 and you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger as T T eight hundred or whatever he was, he's an old Terminator, and that's Facebook and that's Twitter and things like that. And then you you open TikTok and it just feels like the T two thousand or whatever Robert Foster is, that thing that's just a, a futuristic Terminator that Arnold Schwarzenegger's just got, yeah, that's just got no chance of competing with. And TikTok's like that. It's just really slick. It's really simple, hugely addictive, um, and. Uh, absolutely farming your data for everything that it's worth <laughs> and well the the other thing that came out about it a while ago as well that nobody really seemed to care about even the guy who uses twitter who i know uh, who uses tiktok sorry he was obsessed with it he found this story and told me about it and he still continues to use tiktok which shows how addictive it is um the, the story that came out a while ago on, on TikTok was that it was recording every keystroke that you was making on your phone. 
uh, and every time you pressed uh, a key on the virtual keyboard on your phone, it sent it back to TikTok. Uh, as far as I know, they haven't changed that. They they might have done, but you just know that if that's the story that got released, that's the least insidious thing that they're doing, other than recording your clipboard, basically. It, it just really, not to feel too negative about it all, it just really feels like we've got, we've gone peak, peak social media now, that it's just addiction. There isn't, there isn't a, there isn't a nice one. You know, there's not one that shuns ads and that shuns addictive design patterns and lets you get to the bottom of things instead of an endless scroll and things like that. And Instagram kind of does that. They've got that thing where you scroll through and it says, oh, you're all up to date. That's nice. Uh, None of the other ones do that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we got onto that, but. (laughs) It's that addictive. It's that, uh. Once you think about it, you're triggered to remember how the experience feels, and it just feels so focusing, so addictive, and you're just sitting there watching it. It is compelling too. Yeah, I think the worst. I still, even though I said TikTok's really addictive, I still think the worst one is Facebook because that's the one that most people. Two point two billion is it? Two point three billion now or something? Yeah, that are on Facebook, which is just insane. That's the one that I use the least. And I, I've I've got a Facebook account, but I just never really use it because yeah. it's just so full of crap when you go on there. <laughs> it really is, uh, and and all the ads on there and everything are just so annoying. And it, yeah, it's it's that's just that's just free falling into the the money thing. Twitter's still kind of taking the Silicon Valley money and just trying to hold off fully monetizing everything. They've got ads every now and again, but Facebook's just like full on took all the money making all the money and they've got ads everywhere even ads in messenger now as well yeah i think i've determined i know we're getting close to the the hard cutoff but i think i've determined (laughs) that any business that seems to be doing well like it's growing and thriving but you can't figure out how they make money then it's some they've got some sort of money money laundering opportunity involved and I think ads, I would, it would be a, a generous conspiracy theory to say that the Twitter people are taking, you know, drug money and then funneling it back to people somehow, <laughs> the cartels. But um, I mean, what a cleaner way to wash money than to like buy ads and then have that money come back to you and cash somehow as some sort of a consulting fee or payment or investor even. So, um, yeah. I, I've always thought that. I've always thought ads is one of the... It's it's one of the most self-referential ways of making money. That Take Google, for example. Google with the AdWords. They, they make money on selling space on their search engine effectively. Uh, and the more money that somebody pumps into it, the better results they get. And then they keep going and spending more and more and more and more and more money. But outside of Google, there's there's just there's no reason to it. It's just like there's there's no there's no value to it whatsoever in in terms of a wider society. It, and and that's why and there's no limit to it too. 
it's it, it can scale infinitely and i've always just thought ads is just such like a just a nothing way of making money but you can make billions from it have you got anything you want to finish off on no, well, tell us about if anybody, I don't know if anybody lasted this long on the stream, but tell us uh, what you're thinking with this stream. Cause it's, you know, it takes guts to get a stream set up. It's got equipment. You've got to get it organized. And what are you thinking you want to do with it? What am I thinking? I just want to chat to people. That's the, that's the, that's the primary purpose. So each, each Tuesday, even though this is a Friday, each Tuesday, I'm going to talk to somebody at, seven o'clock bst uh, 7 p.m bst and i I just want to chat to people so i I always enjoyed i used to have a podcast called interesting conversations uh, and i always enjoyed talking to people on that and going out and finding out about their lives and just just being interested in what, what they're doing and the way that i did interesting conversations was i i carted all my podcast kit to somebody's house or somebody's place of work and I recorded it and I came home and edited it and all that kind of stuff and I thought well I've made all these connections over the last couple of months since February and I thought well, why don't we just get on zoom and just chat uh, the quality is not as good but you can still have just as interesting conversations so I'm trying it out so you're kind of like a beta case I guess I'm trying it out over the next next couple of weeks and, and just trying to work out the format I'm, I'm basically just putting calls out on twitter and just getting anybody to chat to and i'll chat to anybody anyway because i always think everybody's got something interesting to say there's there's no kind of there's no hard limit for anybody that i'll chat to um so at the minute i'm just testing all the kit out and testing the live stream things out and finding out the best way of doing it and then ultimately it'll just be a regular spot on my podcast my long-term goal is i'm probably going to bring interesting conversations back as a podcast in this kind of format but i'm going to see how it goes first i like the idea of just jumping on a zoom call and chatting to somebody and then just streaming it the streaming bit now it's just so easy to stream stuff now you don't even need much kit anymore so all i'm doing talk about your setup what do you what do you have (laughs) <laughs> and then you got several pieces you got your mic and your mixer and your yeah but behind the crappy webcam which i am upgrading soon um <laughs> looks fine i mean for what we're doing it's a little bit grainy uh i, mm-hmm. I, I yeah I, I, you're doing radio basically yeah um i've got a mic normal mic at2020 um the road procaster is probably the the, the thing that's uh, sorry, the Rodecaster Pro is the is the fancy part that I spoke to with about Elias last time as well. That's is this gonna come off? No, it's a bit too tight. The Rodecaster Pro is the there. Um and that's the bit that I do all the the full podcasts with and everything. So all my audio is coming through the Rodecaster straight into Zoom. And that's about all I've got. I'm trying out restream at the minute for live streaming. Um, and I'm just pumping a Zoom call straight into Restream, so this is going on YouTube. So the YouTube video is made straight away, so I don't have to fiddle about with editing it afterwards. It just goes straight out, uh, which 
was something that was slowing me down last time when I did the that's the job thing with Rich with, with Rich Baird. We was recording the Zoom call, then I edited it afterwards, and it was such a faff, and it really slowed it down. So the ultimate thing I'm looking to do is make it so quick to have an interview with somebody that we just sit down for 45 minutes like this. After the after the show, there's very minimal stuff for me to do, and we just move on to talking to somebody else. That's the ultimate thing, so I can get through lots of conversations with people and not worry about the editing, and not be so bothered about the quality as well. The audio quality is a big thing for me, because obviously you're mostly listening to this, but um, there's a level where that doesn't really matter to most people as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Yeah. I think it's cool. I think I think the fact that you're getting started, you know, you're just getting through these initial conversations. Everybody who wants to do anything has got to get over those initial hurdles and get up that learning curve. So it's fantastic. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And when I did the when I did the interesting conversations podcast, I didn't have a clue how to interview people, and and that was more of a formal interview kind of process as well. I prepared notes and prepared questions and all that kind of thing. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, and I I, I went out and spoke to um, a child cancer doctor and and all kinds of really interesting people who I basically just put a Google form together and said, I'm looking to do an interview podcast, do you want to be on it? And a bunch of people just responded, and I, I spoke to loads of interesting people, I really enjoyed that, but now I've got way more connections all over the globe to talk to that are way more interesting people and that one I limited myself to the to the location of where I was at because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that the audio quality was good this time I'm just doing zoom and there's there's no kind of worry about that on that end yeah the more barriers you can get rid of the better for you yeah and, and you're right it is just it's just a process the same as always just trying it out seeing how it goes in fact Trust your process. Trust, yeah, process. Uh, my webcam, my webcam were pointing further up, so you didn't even really see that. And I only put it on for this because it's warm in this room, and I've got a hoodie on just so I can say trusty process. <laughs> I'm sweating. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Well, I think it's good. I think everybody should follow you to get started. You know, if they if they don't know what you're doing, I found you on uh, Slack, but then you've got your getdoingthings.com and produce more on Twitter and Craig Burgess on Twitter. I make this butter on Twitter. And that was an experiment. I'm also Brian Ball on Twitter and probably have 20 other suspended Twitter <laughs> accounts that were <laughs> failed experiments or I just stopped, you know, engaging with the idea. But uh, we've got some things that we're kind of working on behind the scenes from this, so I'm sure we'll be talking again. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk again soon because I really want to dig deeper into the app zapper stuff. Um, but yeah, cheers, Brian, and let's chat again soon. All right, thanks, Craig. Talk to you soon.